You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. I'm Steve Coleman. I'm a member of the teaching team here. And uh, obviously speaking this morning, we're going to be talking about the third uh, of the feasts, in this case, Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, We had just in the last two weeks talking about the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. And that sort of fills out the fall feasts, fall by our uh, calendar. Uh, If you use the uh, Jewish religious calendar, these actually sort of kick off the year. The Jewish civil calendar, they're in the fall as it is for us here. But we have um, Feast of Trumpets over here on the right side, the Day of Atonement. Justin spoke on both of those and we're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of the three feasts that Israel was commanded to come to Israel to celebrate. Uh, The other being Passover, and then the Feast of Weeks down here, or Pentecost. Um, So over here in the spring, we have Passover, and then for some reason they're not listing the one that falls in between Passover and First Fruits, and that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there's seven feasts in all. And you know, these seven are spelled out very neatly and concisely in the book of Leviticus. And uh, you can see in Leviticus 23, if you were to turn there, Passover is talked about in verse 5, unleavened bread in, cha- in verse 6, first, fruit, first fruits in verse 10 of Leviticus 23, Pentecost in verse 16, then trumpets, verse 24, atonement, verse 27, and then tabernacles uh, starting in verse 34. Let me read to you what it says about the Feast of Tabernacles. On the 50th day, excuse me, the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's Festival of Tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord, and on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly. Do no regular work. After you've gathered the crops in the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord. This is to be a lasting ordinance For generations to come, celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You know, the standard standout characteristic of the Feast of Tabernacles involves this outdoor hut, this temporary shelter. And that's really what the Jewish word Sukkot is referring to, is that structure um, that's out there. Uh, Also, you noticed in there, we have rest from work, offerings to God, celebration. And as we've talked about in the last two weeks, the days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur uh, were, were a time of judgment repentance and forgiveness. All th- all, both of them were solemn periods of time. But it doesn't end there. This third feast, 
on the end of, uh, of these days of all uh, brings seven days of just pure rejoicing and joy in God. Here's a modern backyard example of the temporary shelter that is made um, where people would go, you see a picnic table in there, and uh, they would spend time there and, again, recall the children of Israel as they stayed in temporary dwellings. We know apartment living doesn't prevent these people from observing the celebration. I remember Gary Dereshinsky talking about New York City, where on every fire escape you'd see these, these things all set up. And in case you're traveling, these days they offer a portable version. So we've been speaking about the feast days of Israel for years now at New Hope Chapel. Justin for the last several years and Gary for the decade and a half before that. You know, one thing I've noticed is we have seen that Israel's festivals sort of uh, had significance on several levels. First of all, they were communal. They drew the nation together for celebration and worship as they recalled the common origin and experiences of the people. If you want to think about uh, an example that's like that, maybe our Thanksgiving sort of fits that. You know, and, and you can tell because you hear all the jokes and see all the crazy movies about people that, ah, I've got to get together with family, I hate these people. And it's kind of the one time of year everybody doesn't look forward to meeting with their family if they have craziness in their family. But it's that time when sort of universally in the United States we, we think about families getting together that one time of year, if no, none other, no other time. And fest, these festivals had that sort of flavor for the people. Uh, they were also commemorative in that they kept alive the story of what God had done in the Exodus and during the sojourn. Um, you know, our analogy to that might be Christmas, where we commemorate the coming of Christ. And, and it, it, it spills out beyond uh, the Christian community. Again, sort of generally recognized and thought of as a time uh, for peace and goodwill, uh, even if the name of Jesus isn't used. Uh, they were also, in addition to those two, uh, they were theological. In the observance of these festivals, the, the participants were pre presented with lessons on the reality of sin, on judgment and forgiveness, and on the need for thanksgiving to God, as in the Feast of Tabernacles, and on the importance of trusting God rather than uh, their possessions. You know, when we perform baptisms, uh, whether it's a lake or a river, or as we do it in a swimming pool, uh, there's nothing special about somebody going underneath the water. We go swimming all the time. But there's that spiritual message behind it. That's the whole significance of baptism. The dying to self and being raised in newness of life. That's what these feasts were to Israel. They carried these spiritual messages. And then uh, a fourth one, and there are probably other ways we could talk about these feasts, but the, the fourth one that I'll talk about today is them being typological. They, they, in addition to commemorating something in the past, bringing forward lessons, often they had some future flavor connected with them. And, and Justin did a great job in, in talking about particularly uh, Yom Kippur in that light uh, for us last week. You know, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, second Sunday of the month. Uh, there is a, in addition to all the commemorative aspects of that, we also 
are very conscious of Scripture telling us we do this until the Lord comes. So there's always a forward-looking element to, uh, to that particular ordinance. Well, we're going to spend some time looking, I guess, mostly at the theological aspects of Sukkot. We've had a lot of messages, like I said, and sometimes we talk about the commemorative aspects or the communal aspects. We're going to try to focus on the theological aspects. Uh, while we do that, it's important to realize that God, for Israel, God was and always has been most interested in hearts that are true, hearts that are filled with worship for Him. He's not really about the ceremonies themselves. The festivals uh, did become meaningless rituals at times for Israel. And Isaiah in particular took aim at them in his words from the Lord. Let me read you a couple of verses from there in um, Isaiah 1. I reared children and brought them up, says God, but they have rebelled against me. A people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moons, feasts, and your appointed festivals, I hate them with all my being. That's pretty strong words uh, for God to be speaking, but that's how much he is about life and his people and rescuing humanity. Um, working with Israel in the Old Testament, working through us, the church, in the New Testament. Well, keeping this in mind, let's take a look at what God intended for the Feast of Tabernacles. Take a closer look at Leviticus again. Uh, There's some living temporary shelters, but look at that. So that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Well, that brings a question to my mind. Why did God want them to know he had their ancestors live in tabernacles or temporary shelters? What about that was important to know? What were they to know about that other than just the fact of it? Well, I have uh, several ideas for you. They they aren't um, inclusive, But there's several ideas. Uh, It represented a move out of Egypt. So God had them live in temporary shelters because he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. You know, Israel pleaded for generations uh, for God uh, to uh, rescue them from their condition. It says in Exodus, the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage, rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and he took notice of them. Then you know the story. He he gets, raises up Moses, has Moses come, and through Moses, God, uh, in effect, destroys Egypt, brings them to their knees, and, and gets his people out. Well, then from that time until they were supposed to enter the promised land, they were traveling through the desert in their temporary shelters, whether they were tent-like things or, or how, how all that happened practically, I don't know. But they were in temporary dwellings 
to get there. And he brought them out because of a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise of the land that he was going to bring them to. So he rescued them in this spectacular fashion and and gave them that promise. Unfortunately, though that was the intent, Israel failed miserably. They complained. You can read in the Bible over 10 separate occasions through Exodus and Numbers. They complained and complained again. Uh, One particular time they complained uh, early in Exodus. They were hungry. And they said to Moses, Oh, that we had died in Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate bread to the full. God gave them manna in response to that. They complained about that eventually too. Uh, They complained again when they were thirsty and Moses struck the rock. But they said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children? They weren't very grateful at that moment in time for all of their cries of being released from slavery, uh, that, they were, that those cries were answered. You know, they tell the story of a monk who joined a monastery and took a vow of silence. After the first 10 years, his superior called him in and asked, do you have anything to say? And the monk replied, the food is bad. After another 10 years, the monk again had an opportunity to voice his thoughts. The bed is hard. Another 10 years went by, and again he was called in before his superior. When asked if he had anything to say, he responded, I quit. It doesn't surprise me a bit, said the superior. You've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. (laughs) Our lives should not be lives that are characterized by complaining. Uh, We should be known by our thanksgiving and gratitude. Uh, Just to... To back that up with something Paul wrote, uh, he said, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then as we're to go in our Christian walk, he says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Well, second feature of Israel living as nomads is uh, so that they would be dependent upon God. They were in God's hands. They did have to trust. They did have to trust Him for food and water. They had no security, no means of surviving by themselves. Israel may have had some good days, but they did rebel. They put up a golden calf. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. You know, they got to the, to the edge of the land, and Moses sent in spies, and they came back and they said, the land is good, but there are big giants in the land. Ah, we, we're, we're not sure whether it's a good idea to go against these even though God had done what he had done in Egypt and all the way through the wanderings. They wanted, and Joshua and Caleb stood by Moses, and the people wanted to stone Moses, it says, and elect another leader who would take them back to Egypt. And then there was another rebellion, uh, Korah's rebellion, where 
uh, nearly 15,000 people ended up dying uh, because of the plague God brought. Dependence, trust in His provisions and uh, guidance and protection. Israel did not trust but was stubborn and rebelled. Well, the third one, just to round out this set of, of reasons uh, that God had Israel live in temporary shelters, was it so God could live with them. You know, one of the first things we learn about Israel as they were coming out of Egypt is that a pillar of cloud went ahead of them and guided them. Interesting part of the story is that pillar of cloud led them over to a part near the Red Sea where they were sort of in, in a valley, hill on either side, and the Egyptians were roaring up, having changed their mind, to destroy Israel, and they were stuck in this valley. Um, that's where the cloud led them. But as, as uh, the Egyptians came close, the cloud moved to behind Israel and kept the Egyptians off. Uh, cl- a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire? A uh, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. While God performed the miracle of parting the Red Sea so Israel could get through and escape. Uh, that cloud, that pillar we learn it was the presence of God because it came over and rested on the tabernacle. God spoke through that cloud or through that fire. And it says, whenever the, the cloud rose up off of the tabernacle, the people would pack all up and they would follow that to the next place. And it says whether it was a day or a month or a year, they would stay if the cloud stayed on the tabernacle. God wanted to be with his people. We call it the Shekinah glory. Have you ever heard that term, Shekinah glory? It comes from a Hebrew word that means dwelling or set us a settling. And that's what, uh, that's what these refer to. The Shekinah glory is the presence of God in his glory there with the people. Uh, makes us think of Emmanuel, God with us when we talk about Jesus. Uh, and, and his coming. But this was, this was what God wanted. He wanted to dwell with his people. He had pulled them out of Egypt, and now they were apart in a wilderness place. And they could be focused on God. They could be with him. They could be thinking about him. Every night, they would see the glow wherever they were in the camp of this pillar of fire over the tabernacle. Anywhere they were, they could look and see that strange pillar of cloud during the day coming up off that tabernacle, and they followed it. How could they not think of God when they heard him speak out of it with his presence? You know, Jesus made a point as well about dwelling with his people when he told his disciples, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. God wants to make his home with us. And as you all know, when Jesus' uh, ascension came, he said, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, and I will be with you to the end of the age. Well, here's Jesus promising the Father and the Son will come and make their abode in us if we obey his teaching. God always wanted to be with his people, 
you know, Genesis 3 is the, the time when this rift was created in the relationship between God and his people. So that problem generated the response from God. He sent his son on a rescue mission to rescue us. Jesus, at the, near the end of his ministry, laments, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. He told his disciples, with desire I've desired to eat this Passover with you. The last time he could sit and eat with his disciples. All the way to Revelation 3.20, the verse, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone answers the door, I'll come in and eat with them and he with me. What an interesting way to express God's desire for us. He wants wants to come in and have a meal with us. Very intimate, very... um, a lot, of, a lot of strong uh, f- feeling and flavor with that. And then, of course, in Revelation, he's depicted as a bridegroom waiting for his bride. There's some eagerness in that, too. Well, just like with Israel, he's looking for us to respond to him, to run to him, led and protected by God, and to be given uh, what he promises He wanted Israel to turn their backs on Egypt and love him, to run from suffering under an oppressor and run toward God as their savior, protector, and guide. He wanted them to cash in their bankrupt lives without God and commit to a relationship with him. Most of them rejected that offer, complaining, not trusting, but rebelling, not satisfied with God, but forgetting what he had done, not believing. You and I have no literal Egypt. Our Egypt is life without God. One where we have chosen our own way, done what we please, acted as if there's no God to whom we own our very existence. You know, a lot of us have believed in God and His promise to rescue us from sin and its penalty. We've allowed God to give us life, eternal life provided through Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, we'd love to talk to you about it. Please see me or Rick Sardella over here to your right by the communion table after the service. We'd be happy to talk to you. You know, the rest of us have been rescued. And now we live as Israel did, living in a temporary environment. We're here for 70, I guess 80, 90 years nowadays on this planet. We have a home that might burn down, a stage that might go up in flames. Uh, We have a job that isn't as secure as we would like to think it is. We have the means to buy our dinner, but how quickly can that be taken away? We recognize that our bodies, our houses, our things, our job, our world are far from a permanent life as a shelter is made of branches is from a typical brick home. We have a promise as well from God. All of this is just a temporary existence. God wants to dwell with us now and plans for us to live with him for eternity, both the dwelling now and the promise of future eternity. You know, we had friends who loved the mouse, Disney. 
they went to Disney World at least once a year. They loved it with all of their hearts. One day, they decided they wanted more. And within a year, they both had quit their jobs, sold their house, and said goodbyes, moved to Florida, and gotten jobs with Disney. They wanted to live their dream. Israel was not running toward the promised land. They weren't running toward the dream. They did not want to go in because of their fear and unbelief. They wanted to run back to Egypt. Like Israel, God's delivered us, given us His Spirit, set us on a course for heaven. Are we running to that? Like Israel, we have a choice. Focus on God, follow God, love God, see everything in our lives in the context of our relationship with Him, or love the things, pursue the things, and take security from the things in this life. What are we going to run to, and what are we going to run from? Yeah, it's kind of a a once-in-a-life decision when we accept Christ. But I find not only is it more like a monthly or weekly decision, but sometimes it's healthiest to have it be a daily decision. What am I running from? What am I going to run to? You know, a measure of our maturity in Christ, someone once said, can be seen in what we are running from and what we are running to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God worthy of our worship. The only reason we're here this morning, Lord, is because we love you, because we worship you, and we want to be with you. We want to live with you. We love that you give us the promise of dwelling with us. We thank you so much. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.